Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, my friends out there in Radio Land. I'm just coming in. I'm running around this morning doing a few errands, and I said, oh, let me get on my show. So welcome, welcome. Thanking our, thank our guests for uh, dialing in a little early. He actually was on before I was. So I want to thank him, and I thank all of you, and I welcome you, as always, to Block Talk Radio's Off the Shelf. But this Saturday, can you all believe this is that last Saturday in July? I, this year is time just goes faster and faster to me. But I want to thank you all for joining us here. And as I always tell you, it is an absolute joy to be here with you and have you here with us. To our many loyal listeners, and the number just keeps growing who have been with us for going on 10 years. Thank you, thank you for, for tuning in and enjoying our guests, the writers and the book publishers and the publicists and the small business owners that we bring to you. And they share so many wonderful tips and secrets that even benefit me. For those who is your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf, I want to introduce myself. I'm your host, Denise Turney, coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. And I thank you again for your support, and I encourage you not to let another day pass before you pick up a copy of my new book, which is Love Pour Over Me. And what do you get when you purchase a copy of Love Pour Over Me? Well, you get mystery, and which that keeps you wondering what is going to happen next, and who who did that? That that type of mystery, romance, of friendships between four guys that I don't think you will soon forget. There are high chase scenes and loads and loads of entertainment. But one of my two of my favorite things about the book, relationship between Raymond, the main character, and Brenda, and also uh, Raymond's relationship with his father, which is a troubled relationship, but it evolves as the story goes forward. And you can pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me today by by online or offline at my website chistel dot com c h i s T-E-L-L dot com. You can also get it any online or offline retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Google Books, iTunes, eBook at Walmart, you name it, you can get it. All you have to do if you don't see it on the shelf is ask the clerk for it, and they can order it for you because Love for Over Me is carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest, and our special guest today is Don Stransberry, and I'm excited about today's show because he of his history, his background. Now, Don is a husband and a father. His he home for him is West Virginia, which isn't that far from Pennsylvania. And in addition to being an elementary school teacher, I think is this we've had maybe one other school teacher, one or two other school teachers on off the shelf. He's also a former coach. I don't think we've ever had a coach on before. Now he served as the head coach of Parkersburg High School's girls basketball team. And under his leadership, that basketball team won four state championships. So we have a champion high school head coach on today. And Don is also the author of the books Inky and the Missing Gold, Krusty, Skipping Through the ABCs of History, and Inky, Ogilvy, and the Witches, his latest book. And it is nothing like what it sounds. When I saw the title, I said, oh, this is by a horror story. His latest book is titled... <laughs> Secret Blood, and this book, Secret Blood, won the wild card category at the London Book Festival, and that is a huge book festival, one of the larger international book festivals. That's an awesome feat. And you can check Don out online at www.dstansberry.com. Again, that's D. S as in Sam, T as in Tom, A N as in Nancy, S B E R R Y dot com. You can go over there right now, check out his website, even as you enjoy today's interview. And we're so delighted to have him here with us this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Don. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know how much we appreciate being on shows like this. Uh, it, it really helps, and it's it, it's it's really uh, enlivening, and it, it, I really appreciate being here. We, we're so happy to have you here with us, a coach and an elementary school teacher. 
Oh, my God, you just have your life is so full. And so many people that I've interviewed over the years for magazines and radio, their lives are so, so incredibly full. And it always makes me laugh when I hear people say they don't have enough time to do something. And the people who do get things done, they're the ones with the busy <laughs> schedules. It's just, it's just it's always something that I take note of. Now, I ran track in cross country in middle and high school. And I had my coach was Charles Aitz. He's passed on, but I really, really admired my coach. And I don't know if people who don't play sports might not realize just what a, I mean, an incredibly impactful role that a coach plays in an athlete's life. I can't even begin to start with just how much of an impact coaches have on on other people. Now. He, he again, on me and my brother Clark, he was just so, so impactful. Now, I'm sure you inspired athletes who play basketball for you. Is that what attracted you to coaching to begin with, you know, having the opportunity to help mold another person's life in a in a positive way? And if not, what made you want to be a coach? <laughs> you know, to be completely honest, I wanted to buy, I wanted to save up money to buy a motorcycle. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> and I never did buy one. But, you know, I think that the, part of that is, my, you know, my parents raised me to be polite, to uh, think about other people. And I think once you get in coaching, that is one of the most important parts of, of and I hate to say this, but grooming a young student athlete is to, to know where they stand in terms of how they should be uh, perceived by other people, how they're respected, and how they respect other people. Once you have that as a basis, then the coaching part, the technical part, you know, you can learn that from videos or being around the game or playing, but, you know, it's how to handle yourself and how to be a championship-type person, whether it's in sports or just in life. That is so interesting that you would say that because we hear stories about athletes and some people have negative views of athletes who don't, they're champions at their sport, but it's pretty much where it stops. I think it's important that you said that to to, to help teach somebody to win in life and not just in a sport. Now, can you tell us about the Parkersburg High School Girls basketball team? Before we start talking about your books, when you first took over, what was it? What was the team like? We all have to go through transitions and evolutions, and a lot of times we don't want to come in when things aren't looking so good. We want to come in when people are winning. But what was the team like when you first took over, and how did you help them evolve over the years to be a championship team? Well, uh, first of all, I'm originally from Fairmont. I moved here to Parkersburg about 30 years ago. But Parkersburg is probably like no other – uh, city in the United States because we're you know we're a fairly large city for for West Virginia, but uh, there's no college here to speak of, so oh. it is uh, everything is focused on high school sports and the high school that I coached where I coached we'd uh, won over a hundred state championships in wow. It, in all sports, I mean, not just basketball, but in all sports. And, and in fact, uh, a couple years ago, ESPN had a uh, uh, it's called Title Town, uh, the, uh-huh. the the town in America that should be the, the considered the championship team. We came in second behind Green Bay. Wow! So oh my that, goodness! It, and that's just one high school. There's three high schools here. If you counted all of them, there were something like 200 state championships. So wow. you're when you when you get here, you're kind of expected to um, you know produce. Right. And when you walk into the high school in the field, the field house is completely separate. But there are there are pictures of all state teams and, and all state players back going back uh, to the early 1900s. So it's a uh, it's a tradition through here that you know that I wasn't raised here and I was completely in awe of when I came mm. down here and I was very proud to be part of the program to be part of the you know the long line of of uh, coaches and people who've had success. So wow. then, you know, that's that's how I walked into it and uh, and again I was. Uh, uh, my, I was here for three years as assistant coach and then took over as the head coach halfway through my fourth year. And it was one of those things. It's, it's kind of like this book. I feel kind of – I feel too lucky to, to really take credit for a lot of it. But my first year, I took – like I said, I went through halfway through the season, and we went 13-0 and won the state championship. So, wow. it was, you know, it was part of – 
It was not, you know, rebuilding. It was more like reloading. Oh, my goodness. That, I, 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 you just shared something. I learn something every time I speak to a guest. Really, if you listen, you learn something every time you talk to anybody, wherever it is, if you listen. But I I didn't even know that. I'm like, listening to you like, a, like I'm a student listening to you talk. Now, can you share two to three tips that you learned as a coach that serve you well as a writer? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, one thing I know, and, and it, it, the hardest thing for me right now is uh, is just self-discipline, uh, is just to make sure that I have a couple hours a day to work on what I want to accomplish. You know, and that's what, that's what you know, really basketball teams, are made during practice, but basketball players are made during the summer when they go out and work by themselves and put mm-hmm. that two hours of shooting in, put that two hours of conditioning in. And I think that, to me, is something that I, I know that I need to do. Uh, you know, I like doing the research on things, but I honestly like to just sit down and, and kind of let your mind go and things. And, and when you got grass to mow or... Uh, my yeah. wife wanted all the. T- we have twenty <laughs> some pairs of shutters on our house, and we wanted my wife wanted to change the color on them this year, so I had to get up a letter, pay the twenty some. <laughs> you know, and it's just constantly one thing. I have one daughter that's in uh, going to be in junior in high school, and one that's going to be a jun- uh, sophomore in college, and mm-hmm. we're getting ready to move her all back, so uh, mm-hmm. back to school. So it's just uh, the things that pile up that that yeah. you don't want to. Th- but it's it's hard for me to write when I know I have something to do later. Right, right. Wow. It, it, it does take discipline to sit down and write. And they always say the champion writers, you've got to do it every day. Because yeah. you get better the more you do something. And they just tell you, you you, you got you have to carve the time out. You have to sit down every day, even if it's just a half an hour a day. You have to do it every day because you're going to continue to get better and better and better. I think your brain just picks up on different things to improve upon the more you do something that you might not consciously be aware of. But they tell you just, you have to do it every day. Now, have you always wanted to write a novel? And if not, when did you decide? Now you're a school teacher as well. When did you decide that you wanted to try your hand at writing a novel? Um, no, I haven't always wanted to. I've always been a big reader, uh, and especially at school, especially with the kids' books, you think some of these books are really, really good, and some mm-hmm. of them are okay, and then some of them I could do better than that. So <laughs> that, that's kind of how it started. You know, I thought, well, I, you know, I could make it more interesting, and I think that some of the some of the uh, the young adult books that I've done have kind of been geared a little bit towards boys, I think. Not not mm-hmm. really scary, but little creepy little things sometimes that I can weave in that, that I think that the kids uh, would, you know, remember that part. You know, I, I mm-hmm. like to do the big scenes and have the kids come back. Um, but, no, I haven't um, always wanted to do it. Uh, I did have this idea for this book, and it just it just kind of wouldn't leave me alone. I didn't know if I'd be able to do it in right. the, the proper way, with a respectful mm-hmm. way. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I thought, well, I'm just going to start it and see how it goes, and it really kind of just took off. Well, yes, and you've gone on to win awards now. Can you take us through the transition and this is we're talking to somebody with a busy full life as many of our listeners are and they may want to be a writer as well and maybe we've had writers come on here and they may have said I started out as a nurse I started out owning a business I started out as an attorney and then they moved into writing or to into another field can you take us through the transition for you of going from coach to professional writer well i think um Here's basically why what happened to me was we were a very successful basketball program. We did really well. Then we just became kind of mediocre. I mean, the the championships didn't come. Uh, We were in the same section as another school that got very powerful, and it was really hard on me. I went through several years without sleeping through the night, not not just during Mm. the season, but during the off season too. I mean, I would worry about basketball all the time. And um, that's back when my my two daughters were pretty young. And on the Mm -hmm. nights that I would hear, I would tell them bedtime stories. Well, I got home one night, and they'd already been put to bed, but I had a pretty good story in my mind, so I wrote it down. Once I wrote Mm -hmm. it down, I I slept like a baby that night. And I think what it was, I was... 
taking a world that I couldn't control, if somebody made a bad pass or a bad shot, taking that and taking it into a world that I could control every little aspect of, and it, it eased my mind. And then after wow. that, I, it, you know, it just kind of took off. But I didn't realize at the time what was happening. Isn't that something? It was. It was something? kind of like a life stand. Yeah. And it's, then yes. as soon as I, I, uh, I signed a contract for the first book, then I started thinking about, you know, retiring from basketball because, you know, I'd had my run and, you right. know, things just, ha- things just have to come to an end sometimes. You go on with another right. phase of life. So right, that's, right. That's, uh, that's how I started with that. And, you know, and then I want to go straight into just talking about your books. But when I look at basketball coaches or coaches as a whole, I never think that they worry about anything. It was so what you just shared was very insightful. I always think the athletes worry, but not the coaches so much. It was just interesting what you just shared. Now, could you give us the title of the first book you wrote and also give us a synopsis or overview of that first book? Okay, the first one was Inky and the Missing Gold. And it is about a – it ends up being a 12-inch wizard who was a regular kid until this this voodoo woman put a curse on his dad. And the curse was that his son would shrink down, and he'd only age one year out of every ten. So mm-hmm. at this time, this this everybody thinks he's a wizard. He's really not, but he just knows a lot of science, and he knows a lot of uh, – He's been around so long because he only ages one year out of every ten. He's he's like 600 years old, but he only looks like he's 60. So anyhow, he's kind of the rock star of this ancient medieval world because he can solve problems. All the kings want him, and he goes into hiding because this king's gold is in this tower, and it starts missing. Little by little, it's just seeping out. So they capture him, kind of kidnap Enki, and bring him into uh, this kingdom to find out what's happening with the gold. And there's all kinds, you know, there's kind of, there's a, a royal zoo where there's creatures that are mutated and, and you know things like that, all kinds. And he, and he finds a buddy, and uh, this buddy's kind of a loser kind of character, but he he brings him up and he makes him his friend, and they they go on this adventure together. Wow! Without giving the story away, though, we know that they brought Inky in because he's a wizard and he 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 knows things or can whatever access information that other people other creatures might not. What? Without giving it away, we, they their motivation is let's let's find out why this gold is going missing and stop that. What motivates Inky? They and the people who bring him in to find out why the gold is missing are they from the same people who put this curse on him, or the same creature? No, huh? No, his, his uh, and I too I have woven through it part of the Knights Templar treasure and the Knights of the Round Table, so he's kind of friends with all of them. Um, his motivation is really to. He, he kind of misses the action. He, you know, he misses being needed. So he does, you know, he wants to do things on his own terms. And uh, the king has threatened his, his friend, which is Ogilvy. And uh, so he wants to find the gold to save Ogilvy. Oh, okay. Now, Inky, you said he's over like 300 years old. He's hundreds of years old. Now, from yes. your research, did you do research on the book, first of all? And then from the research... Was it common in books you read about wizards and novels, for wizards and novels, to live so long? Because I haven't read a lot on wizards, so no. <laughs> uh, no, but that, uh, you know, I've always found that really interesting uh, because kind of the book I'm working on now, uh, you know, before Noah, in Noah's Ark, uh, before then people were living five or six hundred years. Then afterwards mm. they, they live more like we do, and I and I've always thought that was an interesting concept. Why it changed, you know, in the Bible, what, mm-hmm. what flipped it, right? Uh, so, but uh, yeah, and then I I was really uh, kind of moved by uh, Talk Everlasting. I don't know if you've read that or not. Um, no, that I haven't. No, that's a, a family that uh, that never ages. They just age, and they oh. and it's kind of like Inky because uh, he. He doesn't want to get close to anybody because everybody that he grows close to ah. grows old and dies, and he doesn't. So everybody he's ever known has gotten old and died. So he kind of wants to stay by himself. And it's a, it's wow. a hard concept. It's a, it's a it's a tough concept to know that you're going to watch your favorite people die. Wow. You know what? I interviewed somebody on on Off the Shelf who wrote a book about vampires, and I never even thought of that. You just made repeated what they said. They said the vampires never would 
they would never die. But it was really sad for them because if they made friends with somebody who did, they knew that they were going to have to leave, say goodbye to the person. So it's almost like you like, I'll live by myself because I don't want to endure this heartache over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah, when you know that you're going to always be here, and it just, I mean, just never ends. We kind of constantly yeah, that would goodbye. be horrible. Mm-hmm. I, so it, I, it's I interesting. What what attracted you to wizards? I, when I think about wizards, I, I've, I've probably read more upon witches. And are wizards like the male witch, or what? 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 What are, what are they in the stories? And do you know where from novels historically what his concept of the wizard came from? Uh, I think you know basically somebody, and, and from what I, from my research, Merlin was not a real person, but you know I think that the concept came from writings about Merlin and the things he could do. But you know I, I always was interested too in the alchemist, you know the, the transition between magic and science, mm. and how may, maybe a lot of things back back then. Uh, were you know maybe chemical reactions to things or you know however they they portrayed mm-hmm. their tricks or and and that's kind of how I based Inky is he really doesn't know there you know any real magic but he he knows things that look like magic so he can fool people. Uh, oh, I'm I'm a grown person and I'm <laughs> <laughs> now can you provide some insight because you wrote another book about Inky. On the kind of trouble Inky faces in Inky Ogilvy and the witches. Yeah, it it kind of it's the same. It's a lot of the same characters, same kingdom, and then uh, some of the questions that were left unanswered in the first one become answered in the second one. Because Ogilvy, when he was growing up, he left his family, and he really doesn't know where they are or what's happened to him, and uh, they don't know why the the mute mutants in or in this zoo or but um what happens is is uh why there's a coven of witches that are nearby and they one of them falls for ogilvy and um he doesn't realize it he just mm-hmm. he just you know he's just not savvy like that uh mm-hmm. so uh you know it, it kind of picks up where the the other story the other story ended but there were still on some unanswered questions so this one kind okay. of answers some of those how in the world did you read a lot of those types of books when you were a kid? I'm sitting here wondering where did this ideal even come from for you? Did you read a lot of these types of books when you were a kid, or where did this no. ideal come from? You know, I really don't know. Once I sat down, it, it just kind of, it just kind of made sense. But I didn't. No, I didn't read a lot. You know, I would I would go in on spells. I remember one one whole summer when I was in high school, I read nothing but Hemingway. Then another one was just a whole summer of vampires, and then another summer was on serial killers. So it was, you know, whatever struck me, I seemed like I kind of focused on that and maybe obsessed on whatever it was that I was reading mm-hmm. for that summer. And that's, you know, that's one of the things I really hated about school was when, you know, during school you had to read what they wanted you to read, but summers you could just plan your whole summer out of reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, why does Inky hide for so long? You t- I know we we talked about the fact that he lives and he never dies, and he, he wants to stay by himself because he doesn't want to get close to other creatures or beings and, and watch them pass. But he hides for like a hundred years. Why does he hide for so long? Well, it, he, like I say, he's kind of like a rock star of that era. So everybody wanted him. They wanted him. To oh, okay. If if he was in the kingdom, um, they would have parties and everything, and he oh. would be kind of like the puppet of whoever, whatever monarch he was serving at the time. So he got sick of the whole thing. Oh, I got you. Wow. Okay. So he's. When I first started researching for your interview, I thought Inky was somebody that everybody wanted to hurt. I didn't know that he was somebody. Oh, <laughs> they all like celebrated Inky. And he, like you said, he got tired of that. Now, how would you compare Inky's powers to those of the? And and then before I go on, are there people? Are these human beings going? Well, Inky's a wizard, and for some reason, I keep seeing creatures. He's a human being. Is that correct? Yes, yes. But it was uh, well, the the way he got to be his size and living so long was his dad was 
on uh, one of the ships that was sneaking away the Templar treasure. They got blown off course and got blown onto some island, and these islanders thought that they were attacking them. So anyhow, uh, this this uh, voodoo goddess or princess or whatever put a spell on Inky's dad. And so she she he could watch his son, you know, shrink year by year. Oh. So th- these are all humans. I, for some reason, I'm thinking these are like creatures, animals. I don't know where I got that from, but these are all human beings. In yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and the only thing is that the, the creatures are in the zoo. And you find out later in the second book that they were um, spells that were not done right by this <laughs> uh, witch's coven who are, you know, just none of them are, are kind of, they're all kind of off. <laughs> none of this them are is- uh, your book sounds so interesting. <laughs> it sounds it sounds interesting that even a child or an adult could enjoy it. And I'm still wondering where did you get this idea? And I know you said you don't know where it came from. It just came from, to you. Now, how would you compare Inky's powers to those of the people who are going after Inky? Is Inky the most powerful being? Yeah, yeah. The, these, these, the, the monarchs and the royalty—they're just lost. They're clueless. They're just kind of mean. They know how to threaten people, but they don't know, uh, you know, they don't know exactly how to, how to do anything. Just kind of how you would picture a uh, comedic royal family, you know, just kind of inept and and just but mean about it. But I did okay. do some research on castles, and, and one of the, the, the main points of the thing were these listening tubes that, uh, that were built into some castles. They're kind of like... Kind of like vacuum tubes, what we have now, I guess, kind of like in banks, drive throughs mm-hmm. But they would have them built into castles so they could listen into certain rooms. And that real, that's, that's, that's something that's factual that you read, that in castles they had. Wow. So I thought that that's an important part of the book, I think. Yeah. Now, what makes Krusty, what, now we're going to talk about Krusty next. And Krusty, for okay. off-the-shelf listeners, Krusty and Inky don't hang out together. This is totally <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what makes Krusty different. One thing I, I noticed, and this, this is probably the mark of a great writer. There's there's one character in the story that y- yes, they're like the other characters in many regards. As we're like each, you know, we have a lot in common with each other. But there's something always just a little bit different about one of the characters. Now, what makes Krusty different? And how does Krusty handle the fact that he's different in some way? Well, he lives on the ocean floor with all the other crabs like, like he is. But these other crabs are all mean, they're greedy. And this one's a picture book, by the way. So so the picture book um, explains a lot more. I mean, you can. Uh, there's a lot in the picture book that, that's not in the writing. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyhow, he's completely different because he he thinks. And he thinks that them stealing and being greedy and mean to each other is awful. So he decides to go out and find a different food source. When he finds this different food source, which are these berries, you know, he likes them. But Mm -hmm. as he eats them, it turns them a different color, which is like, you know, pink flamingos are pink because they eat shrimp. Okay. So, uh, So he changes color. So now he's smarter than all the other, and he's more caring than the other crabs of his community. And now he's a different color. So they're even worse to him. So he decides to go off on his own, which these crabs never leave their area. They go, he, and he goes off on his own, and he finally finds a friend who is nice to him. But uh, the, fa- uh, the friend is this fish who uh, can't talk. So now, for what once, he has a friend. First time in his life he has a friend, but this friend doesn't talk. So <laughs> it's kind of irony right there. But... Uh, yeah. Then they get together, and there's this, uh, this scary place called the Deep Dark where all the really big, vicious creatures live. And they try to stay away from it, but they go around explore and have fun. And then he, uh, the, the two of them find an egg. Well, this egg cracks open, and when they're, when they're exploring, they, this egg cracks open. This creature comes out, and the creature thinks that they, Krusty and this fish, are the parents. So it follows them home. Oh, <laughs> So it uh, it started. It, that's kind of the the starting point, halfway point. But the creature grows way too big, 
to live in the shallow waters like they do, and it has to leave. But there's a happy ending in it. So, so crabs uh, do live together in groups. They, they, they. That's just something you knew they do. I they know, do. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I, you, I always heard. Uh, I always heard the story about the crabs in the burrow, and then when one tries to climb out, they'd all pull it pull it back down. I was always taught that as a kid. Don't don't be like the crab in the burrow and get out and go on and do the best you can with your life. I always was told that story about my from my family about the crabs in the burrow, and it sounded like crabs always stayed together and they didn't want even one of them to get out. So when I think about Krusty in this story, I, I thought about that. It was something I always heard when I was a kid. Well, that's is it your is it your goal to teach readers? And I was going to ask you this when we start talking about Krusty and how Krusty's different. And I, for our off the shelf listeners, if again you go to Don's website and you 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 actually look at the the material there, you have a wonderful website. I think you Thank will you. come away really appreciating these stories, particularly the message that I felt like you were trying to get across with Krusty now. Is it your goal, having said that, is it your goal to teach readers how to deal with challenging life situations like feeling different? And it could apply to particularly the kids who might get bullied in school where you feel different. And was is that your goal, to help readers to deal with these types of situations when you actually uh, sit down to write? Yeah, well, with the, kid, with the picture book, yes, it was. I mean... Um, usually, if, if 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 it's a picture book without some kind of theme or message, then it's just it's just fluff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this one I did uh, start, and it did, and I and I'm the worst self promoter in the world, but I will tell you, say this: it it did win some kind of award for uh, social change. Oh, that's first. wonderful! Congratulations. It, I, well, <laughs> thanks, but I, I actually forget what the what it was now. Um, it was in uh, best uh, USA best books or something like that is okay. Uh, but yeah, it, it did, and and I wanted to, uh, I did want to put the message where if you know if things aren't right where you are, you don't have to stay. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and things work out, and even though he was didn't have the the friend that he thought he was going to have, it was the perfect friend for him. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, Chris Krusty ventures out, and he sets off to explore the planet he lives on. I want to ask you, and particularly for our listeners and and those who have children or grandchildren, do you think taking risk and exploring more of our world instead of sticking so much to routine and not getting out, do you think it's necessary to live in a very happy and rewarding life? Um. You know that's a good question. I would, and I think it's all perspective too, because right now I'm I'm getting towards the end of my teaching career, either mm-hmm. a year or two more. So you know, um, I think it's always good. you always look back and say, well, I wish I would have done this. Even if even mm-hmm. if uh, you were happy the way you turned out, you always think, well, what if it would have happened this way? What if I would have mm-hmm. done this? So I think it may be always good to to look back and take a challenge at least once in a while, uh, and and Try just just to see how uh, things are a little different on the other side, maybe. Mm-hmm. It seems like whatever it is that guides guides you. When you talked about the coaching and it's something, it, it, just listening to you, something whatever guides you is gonna make sure you always come out okay. It, 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 just as a, listening to you, I, I'm picking that up. Now, I wanted to congratulate you on the London Book Festival Award. Just knowing how big. That event is for the um, Secret Blood. I, I wanted to ask you, what was it like? Were you actually there, first of all? And what was it like when you heard you'd won that award? Uh, for, well, I did not go. I I, I went back for it. It was really quickly from the time that it was announced until the the banquet. It was like a month, and I don't have a passport. And uh, the publicist was going to try to set up some some dates there to to do some, you know. And that, my daughter was just that was the summer my daughter was going to go away for college, which was a huge, you know, emotional thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just did I didn't go. I got the award, but I and I thought, well, 
I don't know. So I, I just mm-hmm. didn't. Uh, but mm-hmm. I was. I was really extremely happy when it came, um, uh, when, I, when I heard about it. I know my publisher does not, ha- you know, she's a small publisher. She doesn't have mm-hmm. a... A big, huge budget. So she mm-hmm. enters the con- the book in a lot of contests to try to promote it that way. Mm-hmm. So it's um, and, and this is the other the only other time I'll self promote myself. Okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> it did. It came in second in the Paris Book Awards. It came in. Wow! First in, oh my goodness! Uh, it came in first in uh, the Indie, the New Generation Independent Book Awards. Okay. Or something. Uh, San Francisco it was an honorable mention. Uh, Great Southeast, it was an honorable mention. It was an honorable mention in an international thriller. So it was weird because it it did it did well in different categories. Because one was Christian uh, spirituality, one was mystery, one was thriller, mm-hmm. one was wild card. So it's kind of hard to no, it's it's kind of hard to see what genre fits. Okay. Yeah, it, 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 I mean that is that is phenomenal and a smart move on your publishers. You have a very creative mind to me. Just like I asked you, how you go from a coach to writing these novels and these characters and these story concepts <laughs> that you come up with. Where did you get the idea to write a book about a character who's a Jesus clone? Where I have never even where you have a very creative mind. Where did you even get the concept for that? Well, I've always been interested in uh, bringing back historical figures and putting them in our society and to see Mm -hmm. how they would do with that. And, you know, when you think about historical figures, there's nobody bigger than Jesus. I mean, just from from that straight part. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you you bring religion into it, it puts a whole different set of emotions on the table. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do it, and I, you know, I, I, I went to my publisher after these other books, um, and said, well, i got an idea for a novel. And I said, but I'm only going to do it if I can do it respectfully and I can do it in a way that it's very, I don't know. Do you remember a few years ago there was a movie called Oh God with George Burns and, and John Denver? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, when I left the theater from that movie, I was so uplifted. I was so happy. Mm-hmm. And, and I mm-hmm. wanted to have that same feeling come out in this book. And I mm-hmm. said, if I can do this, I'm going to work on it. And she said, go ahead. It sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and she she kept wanting updates through the time, but but I finally finished it, and then she she was real happy with the way it turned out. Now, do you think, Don, that humans will be cloned in I'll say 50 years or so? Do you really think technology? Can you see this something that will actually happen? I don't, you know, I really don't know. I'm not that, uh, with the, a lot of the science part, I had help with the science. Uh, uh, an administrator here, the administrator for our county's uh, science programs helped me with a lot of the science part. I just know, I think they're cloning goats and things like that now, dogs. Uh, but the sad part, I think, is if it can be done, somebody's going to do it. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's going to be China or us or Korea, but if it's possible, somebody's going to do it. And uh, yeah. I don't know. I think they'll do it without any thought of the repercussions or what it'll do right. to society. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm at a loss to think what's going to happen in five years from now with, you know, who would have thought that <laughs> telephones were important as they are now, you know? Yes, you're so right. Just, uh, telephones kind of control control i think they've they've really hurt the camera industry <laughs> for, yeah. you know you, when say when something gains popularity something else loses it i think you, you, so I, I agree thing, with you the cloning thing i i always thought would be it would be wonderful to see some of these historical figures but then when i thought about jesus i you know the first thing i thought was and this is very surface this is very shallow but i thought what would he wear <laughs> and you know, because that's just the tip of the icebergs of wondering what what, what would happen if if he was here and mm-hmm. and in the book he doesn't know it. Ah. He doesn't know who he is. Wow! So a little bit uh, of Jason yeah. Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of Jason so, Bourne. I, I had to do a lot of deep thinking, at least for me. You know, to mm-hmm. see well, how would this be? What would he do? What would go on? And and it, it's kind of tough to do it respectfully, and it's tough to do it without sounding preachy, because I did not want to mm-hmm. put any kind of 
bias on anything. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, because of the list of things I don't want to do in my life, going to hell's one of them. <laughs> so I had to make sure, and my, I, my, it was one of those things where my mother-in-law was sure we were going to get thrown out of church, and the neighbors wouldn't talk to us, and and that kind of deal. So I've had uh, I've had uh, Methodist and Baptist ministers read it. I've had uh, Catholic priests read it, and everybody was. Everybody that I've that has read to it and I've talked to have been very positive about it. Well, that's good. Uh, to our <laughs> off-the-shelf listeners, we are talking with Don Stansberry, and I encourage you to go over to his website. It's d s t a n s b e r r y dot com. Again, that's d s t a n s b e r r y dot com. You can bookmark his website and go back to it again and again. We've talked about Krusty and Inky, and now we're dis- discussing his book Secret Blood, which has won several awards, uh, and it won an award at the London Book Festival, which is that's a huge international book festival. Uh, can you describe? We know that it's a clone of, of Jesus Christ, but what year is is it in the story that? It, you know this Jesus character is coming back. He doesn't even know that he's he's this clone of of Jesus. Can you tell describe a little bit about the the character and what year is it that this story is taking place in? It's current day. It's current okay. day. Even though uh, the president is not Obama, I mean it's just kind of a you know what I'm saying. It's just a, a president and okay. Uh, so it's not th- that factual, but it's it's supposed to be in current day times. Okay. So, um, uh, it, it's all well. The book kind of starts out in it, in World War II, how uh, the secret blood has been from the from the crucifixion through the you know all, all the way through history. It's been hidden, and and Hitler was trying. To, so the, my story starts off where Hitler is trying to, uh, it, and I, I think this is a true fact. I've, I've done research on. It. He's trying to get all of the. Uh, any kind of religious artifact and trying to possess all those because he thought they had power, supernatural powers. So oh. uh, the the priests the priest in the Vatican and Italy sneak this this uh, container of blood. It's an alabaster jar uh, throughout, mm. and it's hidden in the uh, it's hidden in Fort Knox for all these years until mm. somebody. Uh, and the story actually starts out where with a um, a lady. Whose husband worked on the cloning project, and he, he was the last one alive of that cloning project, and he died. And uh, the lady finds all these journals of his and finds out what's going on, and she takes them during the confession and gives them to the priest. Well, his priest doesn't know what they are. He thinks they're journals about an affair that this guy had had. So he kind of mm-hmm. buries them. He kind of sticks them away. And doesn't want to read them until the FBI come looking for him because this lady has gone home and committed suicide. Wow. Because she just thinks it's, it's horrible that this has happened. And he does, too, but he doesn't want, you know, the, the government to go unpunished. So he takes the uh, the journals and takes off with them, and he is uh, protected by a street gang, uh, a, a street gang who is wanting to go legitimate. And uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of weird, oh, wild characters all through that. Wow, now this is an adult novel, correct? Yes, yes it is. Okay. Okay. Now what is the ghost? What is the ghost and how does it come into being without giving the story away? What is the ghost? Um at the same time, well eventually the the knowledge of these these journals all goes clear to the oval office. Uh at the same time there's this thing appearing in space and they're calling it CNN calls it the ghost because it appears in one part of the solar system, then it disappears and, and appears again in a different part. And it's behaving like our known um, physics w- wouldn't allow it. So it's, do- it's stuff that's completely never happened before. And because it disappears and reappears, CNN calls it the ghost. And that name catches on. Now, there's only one guy that knows both about the journals and about uh, uh, the ghost actually being on a direct course to crash into Earth, and that is the president's brother, who happens to be his uh, uh, his secretary. 
Wow. Now, so he's the, the, the one that kind of connects everything together. I mean, chief of staff. Staff. I don't mean secretary. Oh, uh, okay. So the government. This is something that's been going on since World War Two, and the the government responds. How does it respond after it finds out about the ghost and the Jesus clone? Does it try to destroy them? What does it try? What does the government? What's its response? That it's, to me, that was the most interesting part because I like politics, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, he puts a special advisory committee about it, and they advise him not to mention either one, not to to uh, especially not to mention anything about the clone, but to play down the the effects of this this the ghost coming at them because uh, each one of them gives large reports of this committee about what would you know what would happen if if People knew that the world were going to end. You know, nobody would go to work. Power plants would shut down. Nuclear power plants would be unprotected. Uh, any kind of terrorist groups would uh, immediately launch any plans they had at the time. So they're saying, no, don't tell people that. And uh, and it, you know, that that's kind of the whole crux of the book is should we know or should we not know about wow. this Jesus clone? And but you know, it, it really made me. It solidified some of my beliefs, and it, it kind of made me wonder about some of the others. So, wow. you know, I, it was really a good experience for me. Uh, Your books just, are so interesting. You, you just the ideals that you come up with. Now, you told us what uh, people, religious leaders, have said about the Secret Blood. What have some of the other readers been saying to you uh, about the book? Well, you know, when we released it in New York, I, you know, and that was my first time in New York since I was a kid. And I thought, you know, New Yorkers, you know, they've seen it all. But mm-hmm. there were people that would actually pick up the book, look at the back of it, and drop it like it was going to burn their hands. Wow. And I'd say, you know, I'll talk to you about it. I'll explain anything we can talk about. It. And they say, no, this is not for me. I don't believe in this. I don't want to, you know. Wow. So I think, and like I say, there's going to be an emotion when it comes to religion. Yeah. And, but, you know, I want to say, this is all fiction. You can believe what you want. I do it respectfully, and, uh, you know, I'm not changing the Bible or anything. I'm just saying, right. well, well, you know, just think about this. And I think sometimes you have to do that to, to, you know, kind of ferret out your own feelings about right. what you believe and what, you, you know. Because right. there are just certain things that uh, that we, you know, we take for granted. I mean, I grew up thinking yep. about Noah's Ark the whole time, and then when you get older, you think, my goodness, how would they get all those animals on a boat? <laughs> or I remember that. <laughs> yes, yes. The first time that I saw, uh, you know, went to a museum and saw a dinosaur skeleton, I thought that, you know, that's a big thing. How come that's not in the Bible? And yeah. you know, I'm not saying right or wrong, but I'm just saying that was a question that I had. And then, right, you know, I, I just there's just too many things to wonder about. Right. No, and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how would they get all those animals on that boat? But does writing does writing come naturally to you, Don, or did you take? I know you sat down with your kids and you, they were asleep, and you wrote it, wrote it, started writing a story. Did, did you ever take any professional writing courses, or is this something that just comes naturally to you? Um, I did. I did attend for several, two or three years at least. There's a West Virginia Writers Conference here mm-hmm. and I would go and and listen to writers and talk to people and and eventually that's where I eventually met my publisher. Oh. Uh, she was giving a presentation down the uh, one of them and uh, I got her number and I just I just kept bugging her. I you know, <laughs> I had no shame. I just kept calling her and said, "Well, did you read this? Would you read this? Did you do this?" and and finally we got hooked up and, and and it worked out. But yeah, that that is the only thing now I I do. I read um I read probably two or three novels a month, and I constantly compare, you know, the clarity of my sentences to theirs. Mm-hmm. Because you know, and I think that comes back to the to the practice. Because when when I practice when when I don't write for you know several days, I, mm-hmm. my sentences feel clumsy and awkward and and too long and too wordy. And, and I think it helps knowing. You know, I, I constantly look at other writers, my favorite writers, and say how clear they are. What do they do? They're, you know, I, I usually find when I have too much, I have too many prepositional phrases. That that what's what clogs my my flow up. Mm-hmm. But you know, as far as as far as actually, I, w- I wish I would have done more in college. Yes, but I but okay. I didn't. 
Can you tell us for our off-the-shelf listeners who, and so many listeners, um, they wish they were in your foot, your shoes, that they had a published book. And for whatever reason, and you, I know you were talking about how full your life is, and your daughter's were going to, daughter was going to college, and you didn't go to the London Book Festival where you won Secret Blood won an award, but you somehow found the time to write and publish, even in the midst of all the other things that you do, elementary school teacher, and when you were working on your first book, you were transitioning out of coaching, but still coaching. And you just told us you met your publisher at a writer's conference. Some writers, you know, you've been told to just follow up once, and then if it doesn't go through, just back off. But you didn't do that. For off-the-shelf listeners who would love to be in your shoes. I mean, love to be in your shoes. Can you go, what was that process when you, you met your the publisher at the Writers' Conference? What, how did you keep going after the publisher? Were you calling? Were you emailing? And that you wouldn't quit? Can you go through that process for our listeners, too? That might work for them to get a publisher themselves. Um, yeah, I think I, what I really think is, and I know this is uh, completely difficult, but to meet face-to-face, I mean, I was lucky that I saw her. Uh, she remembered me from the conference because I went up and talked to her afterwards. And I just, I think it's important that you get your face right there and your personality mm. right there in front of them because they get so many. And she's a small publisher, and she gets 10 to 15 things a week from, from people to read. And wow. I know the big ones are, are, are even more. And Yeah. Uh, we have... In uh, in our in headline books, which is my publisher, we mm-hmm. have people coming from some of the big publishing houses now because the big publishing houses seem to be downsizing, and where they would have a, uh, an editor now they share that editor with five or six other people, so mm. they're happier coming to a smaller publisher and and getting a you know personal kind of service than with big ones. So I you know I don't know. Exactly how if you have a if you're with a random house or you know a penguin, uh, how you how you meet them, how you talk, you know it's just there's it's almost like Las Vegas, you know it's like you don't sometimes you feel like you don't stand a chance because everything right. is stacked against you. Right. But, um, I think there's there's a lot of publishers that are smaller that that you people would be just as happy with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you just got to find your niche. But I think also almost every state has a uh, a writers' conference or writers' groups. Right. Yeah. I'm sure, the bigger cities have that, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, I think the younger people in publishing, the people trying mm-hmm. to make their mark, are the ones that are more hungry to get new authors. Ah. So, uh, the ones that are established have the big, you know, the Grissoms and the yeah, yeah. They don't need yeah. anybody else. Right. And, I would agree. They just, they just, you know, that's their paycheck. That's that's their livelihood too. So you can't really blame them, but right, it's tough. Yeah, I, you know what, the, the, I admire that you just kept going back. You made a point though that I never even thought of to get in front of the person, so that they have more than a ladder to connect you with or an email or phone call. They actually have met you in person, and then, like you said, going to the writing conferences. I, we've interviewed a couple of writers here. That's how they met their publisher. They went to a writers' conferences, and some writers' conferences they will set it up so that you can introduce yourself and your work to editors and literary agents and publishers. And that's a that's a good way to get. I never even thought of that when you said. The, something that differentiates you and then if they meet you in person that's one way as we come down to the last few minutes of today's show can you tell us if you're working on a new book and if so can you give us a glimpse into what you're working on and when we can expect to see it on the market well yeah i i am working on uh, well I've, I've started a couple things i've always wanted to do and i have it just completely planned out in my mind is, is a ghost story that's somewhere between if I could do it right, I mean, uh, this is an awful lofty level, but somewhere between Nicholas Sparks and Stephen King, just kind of a, like a love, horribly painful ghost story that has a lot of uh, emotion in it, and, okay. and kind of like between terror and uh, and uh, emotion. And mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I've got it all planned out in my mind, uh, the, but the publisher says she wants another a sequel to this one first. Oh. And, um, because of... Uh, people seem to really like the characters. There's a there's a couple characters in it that that uh, 
you know, uh, people, I've been walking down the street, people that I don't know have come up and give me a hug. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, what, that's what makes it worth going back. They said, you know, you've, you've done this, and it's it's really helped me with my life, and it's made me feel wow. happy about it. So that, that kind of thing, that's a great thing, that, you know, people yeah. are coming out. That's a great thing and the bad thing. That they're coming to the house. <laughs> oh, but, um, okay. <laughs> so, anyhow, they, uh, I'm working on, like I said, uh, something like, uh, you know, maybe a reason why people used to live to be that old and now they don't. Okay. Um, and, uh, like I say, same characters. Emmanuel, which is the clone, is not in it. I, I, would, I felt kind of like a charlatan ma- trying to make money and sell books off of using that name. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, the story was good, and I, I really enjoyed doing it. And mm-hmm. but I don't want to just rehash the same thing over to make money. I, I don't okay. know if that sounds awful or not, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's too important of a subject to just right. You know, wanted to keep doing sequels. Of. So it's some of the same characters, and it's a different story. But uh, you know, hopefully, it's, it's just as funny and, and thought provoking. And now I can say the ghost story. Um, and I'm not sure the name. Well, the name on this one was not. It was not going to be Secret Blood up until the very week before the cover had to be done. We. That was the mm-hmm. only thing I disagree with my my publisher about was she didn't. Uh, oh, the whole time was Ghost Rising, because the Holy oh. Ghost was rising in the character oh, and okay. in the guy. It was kind of a double okay. thing. But but the, but she we she we compromised right at the very end. So and I was okay. happy with it. Now, where can off the shelf listeners get copies of your books? Uh, I think uh, I listened to your introduction, and I think just probably about the same as yours. Uh, On Amazon, it's on Kindle. Uh, Usually they keep them at bookstores where I do signings. But uh, if not, they just order it from your favorite bookstore. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, Ingram's. Yeah. So it's probably just about the same. Okay, okay, so that's iTunes, you guys, and Amazon, and Barnes and & Noble, and uh, all the bookstores. And again, if you don't see it on the shelf, ask the clerk for it, because Ingram is huge. And if you, they can order it, the, the bookstore can order it directly through Ingram. They'll give you a phone call, or maybe send a postcard in the mail and tell you, your book has arrived, and you can go to the bookstore and pick it up. Now, if you're on any social networks, because a lot of people are on social networks, Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest, etc. If you're on any of these networks, can you tell our off-the-shelf listeners who want to in, 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 maybe keep up with you on these social networks, where can they find you online? Um, I haven't started the Twitter yet. Uh, Facebook, yes. So Facebook, okay. Don Stansbury. Then, Don and if they Stans- want to order, order the book, they'll bundle yours and mine together. Okay. <laughs> So for Facebook, you're on Facebook, and you said you you, you are you working to get on Twitter or? Uh, my my daughters want me on there. You know, I, it's one of those things where I'd rather be right if I have extra time. I'd rather be writing than doing that mm-hmm. because I can't figure out anybody would want to know what I'm doing. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, mostly Facebook and uh, and just the website. Okay, okay, we have been. We are. We have less than two two minutes left here this morning on our off the shelf show. We have been absolutely treated to uh, here to speak with Don Stransberry, and he is he's a championship high school girls basketball coach. He's an elementary school teacher. He's a husband. He's a father, and he's the author of several books: Inky Ogilvy and the Witches. And also Krusty, and for some reason I'm drawn to Krusty, the skipping through the ABCs of history, and Inky and the Missing Gold, I like, I like Inky, and Secret Blood, which is his latest, which won the wild card category at the London Book Festival. If you knew how big, big that book festival was, you know how big that award is. And I encourage you to visit him again online at D S T A N S. B e r r y d s t a n s b e r r y dot com. He has a wonderful website. I think you you will enjoy his website, and you can keep up with some upcoming interviews and et cetera that he is using that he is going to be doing 
right there at his website. We want to thank you, Don, for taking time out of your busy schedule to stop by Off the Shelf so our li- you can be introduced to our listeners. And I and do encourage our listeners to support him. Again, visit him online, and you can check out his books. And if you go to his website and you want to say, you know what, I want to get an autographed copy of his book, so I'm going to get a copy when he's making an appearance somewhere, you can keep up with his website that way. And he's also on Facebook, Don Stansbury, so you can keep up with him there as well. We thank him for being here, and I thank you guys, as I always do. And as I always tell you, you are so incredibly awesome. You are fabulous. Go and create an awesomely good day for yourself. Please come back next Saturday, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in the morning, or New York City time, as I say to folks. And tell your family, your friends, your colleagues, book lovers everywhere to tune into Off the Shelf, 11 o'clock in the morning. See you next Saturday, Don. I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Thank you.